Hey, this is Dan Messick, and you're listening to Upstream, a Skeena Wild podcast. Upstream will explore the people, culture, science, and of course the salmon from all across the Skeena watershed. Northwest BC is filled with diverse voices, communities, and economies that rely on a healthy watershed. So we'll dive into the work being done every day on the ground to ensure our way of life and salmon have a future and that the Skeena stays wild. This is episode one, Origins, part one. Hey, Greg, how you doing? Not too bad. It's uh, spring has arrived, so. Yeah, that's always nice. This is Greg Knox, Skeena Wild's executive director for the past 14 years. There are a few others that make up the small team of conservationists at work at Skeena Wild. We'll meet them soon. But first, let's hear from Greg, who's been there from the beginning. Uh, today, we wanted to chat about kind of where Skeena Wild started, the origin story. But first, tell me a little bit about, about yourself. Like, how did you end up in the Skeena? Well, I was, um, you know, I finished university. I went to both UVic and UNBC, and I was really interested in, in fish since I was a little kid. So uh, I got a, a, a geography degree, a physical geography degree, and I wanted to do fisheries work. So I started um, doing that in Prince George, and then my, uh, my wife got a job uh, in Terrace. So I was, I was super keen. I was, wow, Terrace. I knew the place. I had done some hiking and camping around and here and some fishing and I just loved the area. So I was, uh, I had my packs, my bags packed and I was out the door before she even knew what was going on. And so, <laughs> yeah, moved to Terrace. So that was 20 years ago. And, uh, I, right away, I got a job with the Nishka fisheries program. And so I was in my element counting fish, you know, swimming creeks, counting coho, putting in hydroacoustic, you know, like sonar equipment into river systems, uh, video counters, and just, you know, spending a lot of time in, in the Nass River watershed and in the Skeena, loving the place, just, just, uh, it was amazing. And I guess, I guess um, part of it was that I just, I, I, as a kid, I really loved being out in nature because I, one, I, my dad was really into f- fishing and stuff. So he would take me out all the time. So, I, you know, I'd give her home on my BMX from school when I was a little kid and my dad would get off work at four and we'd hook up the boat and we'd be out, <laughs> out in the ocean fishing and uh, catching salmon. And I was just super keen. And then as I got older, I just, you know, I loved hooking up with my friends and, and driving out to lake, local lakes and rivers and fishing for trout and stuff like that. And I, I guess, you know, for me, I was, I was quite an introvert, especially as a kid and, uh, and shy and stuff like that. And just getting outdoors gave me the opportunity to forget about all this kind of social constraints I felt you know, and, and to just be kind of free out there and, and, and inspired. And, and so I just, I, I just loved it. And, and that's why I wanted to, to, to do fisheries work so I could do that as a job. And, you know, it was kind of idealistic at the time, but it, it certainly worked out for me. And so, yeah, I just fell in love with the Skeena, had kids, been raising them here since then. 
around in the early 2000s, I got a, I partnered up with a fellow and start and did an ecotourism business and uh, called Silver Tip Ecotourism. We did grizzly bear viewing, jet boat tours, um, fly fishing. And that was just an incredible experience. I learned so much from my business partner. And I also just so much from being out there every single day and uh, really gave me access into incredible places and it, just amazing experience getting really close to grizzly bears and just the, the wild places in this part of the world are unbelievable. Um, even for people who I talk to who do conservation work and other parts of North America, they, they really, when I show them pictures of this place, they're just blown away and, and can't believe it. So it's, it is really special. And sometimes uh, it's, it's, it's sometimes easy to lose sight of that. But once you get out there again, and it's, it's becomes obvious. What was it like when you would bring people out, you know, on those trips uh, with the ecotourism? What was it like when they would see it if they hadn't seen it before if it was their first kind of entry into the Skeena? You know, what was the reaction? What was kind of the emotions that that you kind of picked up on? Well, they, they really had their minds blown. These are people that would come here from all over the world. A lot of them were from Europe, the US, you know, Australia, um, South America, Asia. And they were just, they were absolutely awestruck at the beauty and the, the wildness of this place. And, and to for them to experience um, that sort of wilderness, especially on this scale, was they just could it was unbelievable for them. And and they would tell us that all every time, you know, it was so different from where they came from. You know, this is this is a place where vast landscapes of incredibly wild spaces still exist on the planet, which is which is a rarity these days. And and that became evident to me when talking to these people. They're like, you know, I travel all over Europe, but, and I've been to the most amazing places in Europe, but it's nothing compared to here. Like, this yeah. is just the next level because, you know, every place there is close to human populations and roads and has been logged at least once or probably a dozen times over the centuries, you know. And when they did, you know, get close to, say, a grizzly bear or a bull moose or a wolf or something, they just, that took it even to a next, another level, right? They just, they couldn't fathom that. Um, and, you know, they left here, you know, I hear, heard from some of these people years later and they would say, wow, that was the best experience of my of my life, you know, that was, mm -hmm. they would just reiterate that and how special it was. And that was pretty moving. I had this uh, older fellow and his grandson come here from, uh, from Calgary and I took them grizzly bear viewing and the, the older fellow wasn't in very good health, but we managed to get him down the trail and, you know, watching some grizzlies. And then I took them on the skein of fishing and they caught, he caught a big Chinook and son caught a bunch of sockeye and stuff like that and the grandfather actually had a heart attack and died on the way home from the trip and and this his grandson sent me this letter that was unbelievably moving just saying how much um it meant to him to be able to spend this 
his last days of his grandfather's life with him in this part of the world doing these sorts of things and I yeah it really struck me how how this place can touch people in ways that you can't even fathom yeah yeah I mean yeah just as you're saying that getting emotional thinking about thinking about that because um you know i know as well as you do that this it's a it really is a magical place and and one of the one of the last that we can still um have access to to the these wildernesses um which i guess brings brings us to the to the next you know issue or the next question how so so you've been been in the skino for a while at that point um you've seen a lot of it you've you've traveled a bit in the skina um, how did you shift from, or when did you notice uh, that there were some issues going on with the salmon, that there were some threats um, to the salmon that uh, started to dwindle the numbers? Like when, when did that really trigger um, in you to say, you know what, I need to do something about this? Yeah, well, for me, it was tied to the tourism business I, I co-owned. And I was just, you know, it started really with grizzly bears and seeing um, logging right, right next to these estuaries. Uh, logging these, you know, 400 year old cedar and spruce trees right next to these estuaries. And these estuaries are places where these grizzly bears, that's where they go in the spring, that they have no other place to go because that's where the food is. The lingby sedge grows there and it's incredibly high in protein and they're coming out of their dens from a long winter and they're starving and, and they go there to fatten up and they need that forest to, to hide, to the mothers to protect their young from older males, you know, to live in, it's their home. And, and to see that logging right there in that place was just like, really, do we have to do we have to cut ancient forest right next to the place where these bears, uh, that's where they, they live. They don't have another choice. And there's not very many of these places. And why, why here? You know, there's other places that are more appropriate. And it really hit home that, you know, that I needed to do something about it. And my business partner and I did, we, we, we contacted the Ministry of Forests and we, we started to raise awareness about, hey, this, this, this is not okay. Like, let's be sensible about, it's not about being against logging. It's about, let's not destroy everything. Let's, let's like keep the system intact. So, you know, bears have a home and other creatures have a home and we can continue to function and enjoy these values that we care about. So, and that, and also I started to um, get more and more involved in salmon conservation because I saw issues with some of the salmon populations and steelhead populations. And you know, I was out there seeing and fishing and swimming creeks and counting fish. So I knew what was going on firsthand. Yeah, so I got, I got involved in the Steelhead Society. I, be, I was asked to be the chair at the time and, and I started to raise awareness or help raise awareness because there's lots of other people doing it. But really got involved in, in trying to get better management put in place so that we weren't just, you know, going to town on everything, that we weren't looking at what we can harvest and ignoring the problems with the other populations that weren't doing as well as the, the big populations. And so that 
that led me to this place in 2006, 2007, where there were a bunch of uh, folks who had done <clears throat> conservation work in, in Mesquina for a long time. And there's, you know, six or seven people came together and they wanted to form a new organization to specifically focus on salmon in Mesquina and to, and they had this big vision, you know, let's actually show the world that people and salmon can coexist and that uh, we can actually do things a bit differently here. Uh, we can, we can have forestry and mining and um, agriculture and other types of industries, but we can do it in a way that protects river systems and water and, and really high value forests and, and salmon. That was the vision and that's where Skeena Wild was formed. And I was invited into that con conversation at the time and to form the organization. And to my surprise, they asked me to, if I was interested in being the executive director of, of the new organization, Skeena Wild. So that was 2007 and um, changed my life around. And I was just shocked that they would ask me, uh, but also saw it as an opportunity of a lifetime and my dream job. And, and so I jumped in with, with two feet. Yeah. I mean, now it's, it's almost 15 years that the organization has been operating in the Skeena. Uh, you know, I guess what has shifted in some of Skeena Wild's work over those years, what are some of the things that you guys focus on now um, to help salmon and, and make sure that they're they're like you say that humans and salmon can coexist together well the foundation of healthy salmon is healthy habitat and so that's a lot of our work goes into protecting and restoring salmon habitat um so the scheme is a big place it's a watershed the size of switzerland and there's you know 70 75,000 people living here and they're all just trying to make a living. And so we have a lot of resource extraction. So there's, you know, it's a pretty intact watershed, but there's a lot of pressures on the landscape. And um, so we spend a lot of time trying to focus on doing things a little, like I said, a little bit differently so that we can protect the function of, of the habitat. We can make sure that we don't log right to the stream bank or that we don't put toxic mine tailings into river systems that salmon depend on, um, that we don't put, you know, that the cargo traveling on, on rail lines, toxic uh, goods or like, you know, diesel or, or methanol or, or coal doesn't get into the river system in the first place. So better practices in these diff different industries that exist and lots of companies are doing, but unless communities and government says you have to use these best practices and you have to put them into place, then they, they won't do them because they're trying to make maximize their profit. And, but there are good companies out there doing good things and providing good examples. And we're trying to leverage that so that it becomes common practice instead of just one company here or there doing it. And uh, we also, you know, we try to work with industry as well. And, and there, there are great people doing wonderful, wonderful things to protect this place in, in working in industry because they live here and they care about this place and they, they love the rivers and they love, you know, 
fishing for salmon or whatever. And they're raising their kids here and they don't want to see it trashed either. So we work to protect that habitat. And then of course, salmon spend time in the ocean, the estuary near Prince Rupert and out into the North Pacific. So they go across this massive geographic range and they're dependent on the environment in this huge area. And so we also work on trying to protect these critical habitats in, in the Skeena estuary. And then we work um, through uh, like the Pacific Salmon Treaty and other ways to try to ensure our salmon are have some protection when they're out in the ocean as well, when they're outside of Canada, you know, in this international space. And uh, so that's one thing we do. And then we, we also work a lot on, on harvest. So trying to ensure fisheries are sustainable, that they are protecting the diversity of salmon. You know, Zeskina has over 300 unique populations of salmon and steelhead, and they're all important. And, you know, the thing about salmon is they're highly adaptive and we don't know how they're going to adapt in the future. You know, over time, you know, across the salmon's range, across Western North America, we've really, humans have kind of thrown everything we can at them. We, you know, we, we beat up their habitat. We uh, try to harvest as many as we possibly can and more. And we, you know, we put fish farms in their way and, uh, you know, put pollution in the rivers and stuff like that. And, and now on top of all those things that, that humans are doing um, and have done for over a hundred years, we're now, uh, you know, we have this climate change and we have uh, a warming ocean, which impacts their food supply. Warmer water means less food for salmon because it impacts the, the base of the food chain, the zooplankton and all the little critters that salmon eat and the fish salmon eat. And um, also we get more extreme weather events like sometimes we get drier summers, so lower rivers, with higher temperatures, which have huge impacts on salmon. We also get uh, some more intense rain events in the fall. So these what are called atmospheric rivers. And so we really, these additional impacts we're seeing, especially in the last seven to 10 years with climate change are, are really hitting salmon hard. And it, it's hard for people to, to kind of understand that because, uh, you know, we go home at the end of the day and we go inside our house and we turn on the heat or, you know, we have a roof over our head to protect us from the storms. Uh, but salmon live out there. They live in water and water is susceptible and a few degrees Celsius can make a big difference for them. Or, uh, uh, you know, low flows where they can't get over that waterfall or through that beaver dam or whatever makes a big difference to them. Or, or when, the, when they're trapped in a little pool and the grizzly bear or an eagle or a wolf is there and they're easy pickings, that, that makes a big difference to them. So. You know, climate, they're on the front lines of climate change. And so it's been more important than ever that we be careful and we try to minimize the other impacts we're having on them through the habitat, all the habitat impacts we're having, but also harvest, you know, we have to back off a little bit, give them a chance. And so that's what Skeena really, Skeena Wild really tries to do is give salmon a chance to adapt into the future with these new pressures of, of climate impacts. 
If you like what you're hearing and want to hear more about the Skeeno watershed, salmon, science, and how communities are working together to ensure a future for all the creatures that call the Skeeno home, then download the Upstream podcast. Check us out at SkinoWild.org or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the show. You know, one of the other things I know uh, we do at Skeena Wild is is uh, try to, uh, you know, use the science, but also traditional knowledge to really inform ourselves, um, inform these practices and these approaches. Tell me a little bit about that, the science and the things, and also the work that Skeena Wild does with Indigenous nations. Yeah, uh, well, we try to found all our work in, you know, science. So... We have a science, couple scientists on staff. You know, I have I have a, a science background, and we do a lot of we do a lot of science work uh, to understand what's going on with different populations and and develop rebuilding plans and implement them um, and use this information to inform our habitat protection work, restoration work, um, and and harvest sustainable fisheries work, um, and all of this work is strongly dependent on our partnerships with with First Nations uh, because they're, they're so invested. You know, they built their cultures on, on salmon and they're still incredibly tied to salmon, especially in a place like Tuskina, and they care deeply. And so they're a natural partner for us. And we, all of our work, all of the successes we've had in our work has been dependent on our partnerships with First Nations. So that's incredibly important. And of course, they bring knowledge that dates back further than we, than we understand. You know, we often look back to 1950 or 1960. Well, they, they bring knowledge that goes back hundreds and, and thousands of years. And, and so, and they, they have different ways of knowing and understanding, which in, interestingly, when you look at the science and you look at First Nations traditional knowledge, there's so much synergy there. There's so much overlap that um, it just makes sense to, to use both and to bring both together. And then of course, First Nations have brought a lot of science capacity and built a lot of science capacity in the Skeena around salmon and salmon habitat. So there they've done a lot of this work um, over, over the decades and built capacity. And so we just, we just try to, you know, work and help and assist and leverage that knowledge and capacity with First Nations and and not only First Nations but local communities who also, you know, are you know non-Indigenous people living in our communities. They're out there walking creeks and you know they they're out there. They they see what's going on and. And they have a lot of knowledge too that they bring to the table. And so that's really important for us as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, you know, again, a lot of the issues uh, that we're seeing these days, um, uh, as you mentioned, you know, there's 300 uh, distinct populations of salmon within the watershed, within the Skeena, um, you know, 600 some odd kilometers of this, this majestic river um, from the headwaters down to uh, just south of Rupert. Um, but again, this is just one place in the Pacific Northwest uh, on the coast where there are salmon, Pacific salmon. You know, there's salmon in Japan, there's salmon down in the States, there's salmon in Russia. What makes the Skeena and Skeena salmon so important and unique? 
Yeah, the, the Skeena, it's it's a really large system. It's you know an area the size of Switzerland. And you know, like you said, 300 genetically unique populations. The Skeena has uh, some of the largest salmon on earth. So in terms of body size, so the largest Chinook salmon over hundred pounds. I think the, the largest Chinook salmon from the Skeena was at 120 pounds. That's, those are, those are world record fish. Uh, the largest steelhead in the river and uh, some of the largest coho salmon in the river in, in the world. Um, it's, it's also the most diverse and important steelhead system in the world. And, you know, when you look at it at a global scale, it's, uh, it's one of the uh, last remaining large, relatively intact watersheds on the planet that still has really good diversity. Um, still, you know, even though we've seen declines in recent years, there's still lots, you know, quite a, quite a lot, large numbers of, of salmon returning to the system. The diversity of habitats gives it a unique chance and its diversity to try to adapt to these new climate pressures we're experiencing. Uh, it's also a one of those few places where, you know, further north and in some of those Russian watersheds, there's very few people living there. And uh, what makes the Skeena different is that there's this large human population. And it's actually a place where we can try to show that humans and salmon can coexist in a meaningful way and provides us a unique, unique opportunity. And this isn't just coming from Skeena Wild there back in uh, around 2006, uh, a group of international world-renowned salmon scientists looked at watersheds around the North Pacific. So Japan, Russia, uh, Alaska, BC, Washington, Oregon, California. They ranked them in terms of their importance as, as salmon systems and what potential future they could have. And the Skeena ranked extremely high in their rankings. And so, yeah, the Skeena, it's also, you know, the second largest salmon producing system in Canada. And it's incredibly important for First Nations cultures and local communities. This is a place where people are still tied to salmon in a meaningful way. We did a poll a few years back that showed that over 80% of the people living here were tied to salmon in some way. They, they relied on them for a living. They harvested them for food. It was part of their, um, their recreation or how they connected to, to nature, the outdoors, you know, taking their kids fishing. You know, or they, they you know, depended on salmon as food that was given to them from someone else who had harvested it. So it, it's incredibly important for so many different reasons. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I know I've run into, you know, dozens of fishermen from all over the world in, in the last decade living here. Uh, and it's just incredible, you know, having some of the chats with them. Uh, a lot of them have been coming here for 30 years, you know, fishing the same river, the same spot for 30 years. 
um, and they've seen the changes, but they also know that uh, it's so important to ensure that there is conservation work being done because they've been to other places around the world in the states that don't have uh, the type of habitat, they don't have the, the type of populations that the Skeena does here. And so it's really interesting talking with them because although, like you said, sometimes it's, it's you know, living here, you might you know, miss the mountains, so to speak, you might miss the fish because we're just so used to it. Um, these people really give a, a great perspective because they don't see it all the time. They don't live it. It's a treat for them to come here and they, they just can't get enough. And they wish that they could live here. And, and we're the lucky ones that, that get to call this place home. I guess on that note, you know, after all these years um, of, of working in the Skeena, of working in conservation and in, in ecotourism, um, uh, in the, having a science background, knowing, you know, the data, knowing that climate change is having a, a huge impact on salmon and will continue to, you know, what are some of the changes that, that you've seen um, over these last number of years? And, and then also, you know, what's your hope for the future with salmon in the Skeena? Yeah, you know, when I arrived in, you know, 20 years ago, the Skeena was experiencing really healthy returns. Some, and in some years, you know, record returns of, of sockeye salmon, Chinook salmon, big runs of, of steelhead and coho. The, the only, you know, salmon species that wasn't doing so well when I, when I arrived was, was chum salmon that had been, you know, depressed for, for quite a long time. So generally, just abundance, healthy populations, and definitely there are issues, a lot, no shortage of issues, and uh, you know it's a huge place and, and lots of different populations of salmon. So there were definitely issues, but um, but generally pretty healthy, intact system. And and now um, around 2012, 2013, we started to see more fluctuations year to year. You might get a good year and then a bad, not so good year, you know, and it was kind of variable for several years. And then in the last maybe three or four years, we've really seen just general declines of, of most species and record low returns of sockeye and Chinook salmon. Really concerning, um, mainly, you know, if you if you talk to the the lead salmon scientists around the world and who also live here in 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 Skeena um, consensus is, is that these these additional climate pressures these climate impacts warming north pacific especially but also you know more uh, droughts and and extreme floods and stuff like that that are happening here are what are, is driving these most recent declines in salmon abundance. It's a really concerning situation. And the, the, the problem is, is that we have this additional pressure from climate change impacting salmons where they live, the water. And um, we, we continue to put all these other pressures that I talked about earlier on salmon, you know, trying to harvest as many as we can and, and um, you know, if you know the, the cumulative impacts on the habitat keep adding up you know they just can't they can't sustain that level of pressure anymore and we we are trying like people and people are making people who live here are making a lot of sacrifices especially the different fishers you know first nations trying to get food commercial fishers who it's it's really hard to make a living off commercial fishing for skein of salmon anymore just because of the situation and then, and then recreational or locals who want to go out and get 
some fish, you know, there's been a lot more closures recently and that's been really hard on people. And, and yeah, they, people have made a lot of sacrifices. Local people have made huge sacrifices to try to protect these fish. And it's having, it's having an impact the, you know, we are, we are, we are giving them a somewhat of a chance that there's, there's certainly more work to be done. And yeah, it's not, um, it's not an easy thing to see the impacts on people's lives, people I know, you know, it's, it's a really sad thing, but what else do you do if the fish aren't returning, you have to back off. Right. And so it's been a tough journey, but at the same time, we see real, I see real elements of hope. You know, we, we see certain populations of salmon actually doing better. Climate is actually making some of our river systems more productive, you know, where you get super cold systems where, you know, the water's so cold, it's not very productive. There's not a lot of food. Well, they're warming up a bit and, and that looks like it might be actually making the habitat better for salmon, making the food supply a little bit better. And we're seeing some populations actually start to do better and rebound. And, and that's the importance of the diversity. So maintaining that diversity, because we don't know which populations are going to react in which ways. And if we want salmon on the landscape in the future, we have to give them a chance. And, and this diversity is our most, most important asset we have. And so that's what's so neat to see in this climate change. It's incredibly difficult and sad and gut-wrenching at times. But at the same time, we're seeing how resilient salmon are. And if you imagine that eight, 10,000 years ago, there was a couple kilometers of ice over our heads. It was all glaciers here. There were no salmon. There were no trees. There was nothing, you know, just glaciers and, and rocks. And in, you know, over the, a few thousand years, glaciers melted and salmon came from other places and established into these river systems. And then over a few thousand years became some of the most, it became some of the, one of the most diverse and productive river systems in the whole world. That's unbelievable. Now we're seeing within a generation or two, you know, four years or, or eight years, we're seeing salmon all of a sudden colonizing new river systems where we didn't really see them before and some systems becoming more productive. And, and so that's incredible in how short amount of time salmon can adapt and change to the changing conditions that they're experiencing. And that's the, what's incredibly uh, inspiring to me in my work is that salmon are resilient. They'll, they'll be able to adapt, they'll do it. We just have to give them a chance. And so going forward, that's really at the heart of Skeen Wild's work it's giving salmon a chance to adapt through this incredibly difficult time. We are focusing on some of the kind of immediate issues. You know, if there's a, a development that poses a specific threat to really important salmon habitat, then we're going to work on that. We're, we're going to be, we're going to put a lot of resources into that. And we have done so over the years, but where we try to put most of our effort in is into long-term solutions. You know, land use planning, we're doing a lot of work and working with indigenous communities on land and marine use planning now so that we can put the, the plans in place to be able to protect those critical habitats while still enabling in industrial activity and other activities on the landscape. So putting these plans in place in a way that we know we're protecting critical habitats and we're keeping the systems intact. That's really key. And, and, you know, there's obviously poli government policy and regulation that impacts land use decisions 
we're involved in those things to try to improve them. We're trying to provide examples of people of industry and people who are doing things differently and doing things right in a way that protects these values while still making a living at using these resources and, and living in this place. And, and people are doing it. People are showing us, helping show us the way, right? And just trying to, 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 to hold those people up and say, look, they're doing it. Let's, let's do more of this, right? Try to inspire other people. We are also uh, working through environmental assessments within industrial projects to try to make sure those industrial projects are done in a way that protects salmon and water. Um, and then more recently, we're really starting to focus a lot more in, in restoration and citizen science. You know, people, we all the time, we're hearing a lot more about people who want to do something. People walk into our offense and go, I'd love to volunteer with you guys. Or they phone us up or send us an email. I'd love to, to volunteer. I want to do something. I see what's going on out there and I really, I really care and I, I want to get involved. So we, we're, we started a volunteer program. It's going to focus on cleaning up rivers, doing restoration work, doing taking water samples and that sort of thing, counting fish. So we're just getting that off the ground. We've had a couple, couple of events so far. Uh, we just got some grants to do restoration work. And so restoring local rivers and creeks and doing monitoring. So we're really excited about those things because it, there's so much opportunity for local people who care about these issues, care about the fish, care about local places to get out there and do this work. And we're really, Skeena Wild's trying, doing our best to enable that. And we're gonna grow that. We're gonna you know, secure money and resources and build partnerships with First Nations and community groups to do that work into the future. And we see that as really exciting and really hopeful. Cause we know, as I said, if we can get out there and be active and if communities care and get out there on the ground, then salmon will have a, a bright future it's going to be a rocky road, but they're resilient. And if we give them a chance, then we're going to, they're going to be around for us into the future. You've been listening to Upstream, a Skeena Wild podcast. Over this first season, we'll speak with those on the ground working every day to ensure a future for Skeena salmon, the people behind the science that are increasing our awareness and understanding of one of the last intact salmon watersheds in the world, and what responsible development could look like. We'll also dive into what makes the Skeena such a significant and unique environment and how Indigenous nations and local communities are pulling out all the stops to ensure our way of life and salmon have a future here. If you want to hear more, check out skeenawild.org or subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And don't forget, tell your friends. Thanks for listening.